You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess our need of you. We acknowledge and, and pray along with your word, Lord, that we might decrease, that you might increase. Would you speak to us this morning through your word, that it would encourage the parts of our hearts and our lives that are weary, that it would strengthen the, the parts of us that are weak, that it would challenge and round off the parts that are proud, that you would build up your people through your word, by your Holy Spirit, that you'd continue that refining work of purifying and beautifying your bride, your church, even this morning as we spend time in your word. Help us to continue to worship as we go to your word this morning. Would you help me to, would you chain my tongue? That your people would be edified and built up by what you have to say. Encourage us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. It is good to be with you. Uh, we're continuing in the Psalms for the summer, so grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 26. Uh, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and someone will be coming around and can, can get you one. And if you'd like to take notes as well this summer, uh, we have these little notebooks at the back. I don't think I... Oh, I do have one up here. Look at that. Um, back at the connection desk, these little kind of craft paper notebooks with the Psalm sticker on them. Very, very cool. Uh, you can thank Tim... Walker for this sweet design we've been using. Um, but we have more of those in the back if you'd like to take notes and follow along uh, this summer. They're at the connection desk. They're yours for the taking. Um, today's psalm, Psalm 26, is only 12 verses, um, but it's interesting. It's, it's an interesting one. We, we know from the text it's a psalm of David. That part's recorded for us, but we don't have any other context we, we don't know what part of, of David's life, at what time in history, this particular psalm was written or is referencing. Other psalms have details about specific times or events. This one does not. We don't know the circumstances David may have been in. But from what we can tell, David is being accused of something. And he feels wrongly accused. That he is innocent of whatever it is he's being charged with. And he is stating that he is, in fact, a man of integrity, at least in terms of this particular accusation. Now, there's a number of things in the life of David, it could be, and we're not sure, so we're not going to speculate. In fact, uh, uh, one uh, theologian who was talking about this psalm and another said, these ones are challenging. I'm like, good, I'm glad I picked this one for the summer. But nonetheless, David is being falsely accused, and this psalm is a, is a strong pushback, if you will, against a false accusation, and it is a confident declaration of his innocence and his integrity. And you can kind of feel that. Well, you'll feel that as we read through the psalm, this back and forth, David's declaration of his innocence and his disassociation with wickedness and evil, his declaration of innocence and his pushback 
against evil. You'll feel that a little bit as we, as we read it. So that's a little context, a little bit of the structure. Let's read the psalm, Psalm 26. It'll be on the screen as well. I invite you to kind of read along in your Bibles or on the screen. Psalm 26 of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked." I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me... I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. This is God's holy word. May we have ears to hear. Amen. Now what's striking to me about this particular psalm is just the sheer confidence in David's words. I mean, if this is a prayer to be prayed or a, or a song for God's people to sing, there's some strong mo- hand motions, right? Let's take this to Sunday school. If this is a Sunday school song, there are some pretty intense hand motions that go along with this song, right? There's some table pounding and chest beating in this one, right? Vindicate me, of Lord, right? I've walked in my integrity. Can you just see the like full caps in this psalm. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord. That's what it sounds like. And I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty strong to me. There's a confidence that David has here in this psalm. And to be clear, from the beginning, this is an arrogance. David isn't claiming sinless perfection. But he's looking in at a situation in which he's found himself, something happening in real time, and he's able to say, my conscience is clear. I'm clean before others, and I'm clean before God. Now, here's a reality for our human condition, right? This is a human issue, not just a modern issue. We see it all around us. How do you know When you're right. Right? How do you know when you're on the right side of a cultural issue or the right side of history? You've heard that phrase before, right? When you make a decision or you settle on a position on something, whatever it is, how do you know when you're right? And how confident are you in your rightness? The question boils down to this. How can we live our lives with this kind of, what I'm arguing David has, is a godly confidence. It's a holy confidence. Not arrogance, not pride. How can we live our lives with this kind of godly confidence? And I think Psalm 26 helps us see this, that godly confidence comes, is ours, as we pursue integrity and trust in God's grace. 
Let me say that again. Godly confidence, holy, pure confidence is ours as we pursue integrity and trust in God's grace. And so these are the two main ideas I want to draw out of our text today. Tests of integrity and trust in the Lord. Tests of integrity, which we'll see from David, and trust in the Lord. However, the flow is going to be a little different. I had to rework the sermon twice this week because it didn't make sense when I got to the end of it. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Rework it. I mean, it made sense. It just wasn't as clear to communicate. So we'll see if the third time's a charm or not. We're going to look at integrity first, and why it mat- what it is and why it matters. And then two, we're going to look at these tests, if you will, of integrity, where David says, prove me, try me, test me. We're going to look at them and how each of them is anchored to trust in the Lord. So, so first we'll define integrity. What is integrity? And then we'll turn our attention to tests and trust. And there's three tests that we'll look at. Our focus, our feels, and our feet. Our focus, where are our eyes? Our feels, where's our heart and our affections? What do we love? What do we hate? And our feet, what are our actions? What are we doing? Trust. A test of integrity and trust in the Lord. So before we get to those tests, let's define integrity. A simple definition of integrity is this. The qualities of honesty, having strong moral principles, and moral uprightness. Honesty, strong moral principles, moral uprightness. David cries out, Vindicate me, O Lord. And when you see in your English translation, L-O-R-D, capitalized, more often than not, it's the the name God gives himself. It's Yahweh. Vindicate me, O Lord. Prove me to be right. He's using God's proper name, and he's telling God, prove me. Prove me right. For I have walked, David says, in my integrity. Now, if you've read other Psalms, Like Psalm 7, for instance, David says things like, Judge me according to my righteousness, which we covered a couple summers ago. Or here in Psalm 26, he says, I have walked in my integrity. And you might be thinking, Jake, didn't you just say this wasn't arrogance? How do we understand this? Now, David is not claiming, I said this already, and I'm going to say it again, he's not claiming some sort of universal righteousness and sinlessness. In fact, We see over and over again in the Psalms, David is pretty honest about the condition of his heart. He makes lots of confession for his own shortcomings and sins. In Psalm 25, last week, David pleads for God's mercy and forgiveness. He says, remember not the sins of my youth. He's asking for forgiveness. In Psalm 51, David famously cries out after his sin of deception and adultery and murder... Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a a, a right spirit within me. So if David is not claiming some kind of sinless perfection, what is he saying? I think all throughout the Bible we find a kind of forgotten category for what Mitch Friedman calls situational righteousness. I should have put the quote on on the screen with his picture. Mitch and I were talking about this week. We kind of have lost sight of this idea that in a given situation, there might be a person who in the situation is guilty and who another is by and large innocent. Parents in the room, you deal with this every single day. 
situational righteousness, right? You've got kids in conflict with each other. And you work really hard to figure out, well, what actually happened here? Who was actually in the wrong? I see moms around the room kind of grinning at me right now like, yes, I know that feeling. It happened this morning, right? Why do you do this? Well, because you, you want to deal out correction appropriately, right? It's not always the one who comes running to you first. It's not always the one who cries the loudest. If you're not a parent yet, you'll discover that. It's not always the squeaky wheel. Now, we know that most conflict has at least some share of res- a shared responsibility, right? But, but wise, judicious discernment seeks to get to the bottom of what actually happened. What is true? Right? It's wisdom. It's discernment. It is possible that there's an innocent party and a guilty party, at least in the situation. And David is saying here, in this situation, whatever that situation is that we're not exactly sure on, in this situation, David is saying, God, I'm innocent here. I didn't, I didn't do what they're accusing me of doing. My conscience is clean before God. I'm not hiding anything, David is saying. My heart is, is open here. I have walked in my integrity. So we need to have a category for situational righteousness. Lowercase r, okay? Lowercase r, righteousness. Not justified before God, capital R, righteousness, but righteousness in context. And so the question then we're asking is, how can we live with this kind of confidence? Not that we're always right about everything, but confident that we are walking with integrity, honesty, uprightness, before God and before others. Well, David says this. He says, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. And so David, in displaying this strange confidence, anchors it to integrity. He anchors it to integrity. So I think Psalm 26 offers for us a a, a biblical principle. To have this kind of holy, godly confidence, we don't chase confidence. This isn't a TED Talk on three points to have more confidence. In order to have, to obtain this kind of holy, righteous, godly confidence, Psalm 26 points us to pursue integrity and trust in God's grace. And so this is the, these are tests, if you will, that David is proposing when he says, try me, test me, God. We find a test of focus. Where are my eyes? A test of feelings. Where's my heart? And a test of feet. What are my actions? So let's look at those three. First one, test of focus. Where is your focus? Where are your eyes? Look at what David says in verse 3, right off the bat. Test me, try me, O Lord. And then he says this, For your steadfast love is before my eyes. What is David looking at? The steadfast and faithful love of God. The unwavering commitment of God to his people. David says, My eyes are fixed on the steadfast love of God. And I walk in your faithfulness, David says. He doesn't say I walk in my faithfulness. He doesn't say my steadfast love is before my eyes. 
He says, no, your steadfast love, O Lord, and your faithfulness are before my eyes, and I walk in them. Vindicate me as I walk in my integrity, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. The direction of those uh, identifying nouns is important. Your steadfast love, your faithfulness. David's focus is not on his own works, on his own merits. David grounds his confidence in the Lord's love and the Lord's faithfulness, which is really helpful because if we look at our own performance day to day, our confidence will waver depending on what kind of day we are having. Maybe not yours, maybe just mine. I'm just willing to bet yours is kind of like mine. Right? If we're reading our Bibles, if we're really kind to our the people who live in our house, siblings, spouse, roommates, if we're diligent in our work, we feel pretty good about ourselves. I had a good day today. But if we're short-tempered with our kids or sitting in traffic or we haven't cracked open our Bible for a few days, we start to feel kind of terrible, right? If we... Focusing on our performance is not a great way to pursue integrity and grow in godly confidence because it leads us in one of two different but equally deadly directions. One, if we're feeling weak, we not only tend to doubt ourselves, but we tend to doubt God's goodness. We doubt, can God even still love me? Does he even care? And we can fall into that ditch over here. The other extreme, if we're focused on ourselves, is that we get overconfident in our own ability to accomplish what God would call us to in our own strength. So then we start looking down on others and say, well, if only they could do like I do. If only they could be like me. Because I'm getting it right. And in both cases, where's the focus? Well, focus is here. It's on self. So it robs us of joy and We're no good to others because we can't point them to Jesus where there's real help. Instead, David's focus and our focus is on God, on God's steadfast love and God's faithfulness. So the test of integrity is this. Where are my eyes? Where is my focus? How do we keep the glory and majesty and holiness and greatness of God in front of us, before our eyes? He is the Holy One. He is the Righteous One. He is the Faithful One. He is the Merciful One. Augustine wrote, It's not my merits, but your mercy before my eyes. So what does it look like to trust in the Lord when it comes to our eyes, our focus? David's trust is in the Lord. Psalm 121 I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Where are we looking for help? Up the hill to the house of the Lord, metaphorically, or inwardly, hoping to find it in ourselves. We talked about it this last week in our, in our community group. Our discussion was, was really rich coming out of Psalm 25. I'm tempted to operate first in my own strength. And only when I'm exhausted, then I tend to cry out to God for help in a situation or for wisdom. I mean, how foolish am I so often? 
right? What I say I believe about God, being good and wise and working for his glory and my good, I betray all that when I essentially tell him, I don't need your help right now. I can do it myself, right? So my eyes and your eyes need to be redirected to Jesus. Now, make note, you'll want to write down Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 somewhere, because we're going to come back to this over and over again here as we turn our attention and trust in the Lord. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you catch that? Run. How? Looking to Jesus. Eyes fixed on Jesus, who himself looked forward to joy. The joy that was in front of him on the other side of the cross. The joy of redemption for you and for me. The joy of glory forever. He endured death on the cross and burial in the ground and raised again to glorious life. So tangibly, we pursue integrity and grow in godly confidence when our eyes come off of ourselves and our circumstances and we are able to gaze upon the beauty and the grace of Jesus. That's one of the reasons we take communion here at River City regularly, weekly. It's a regular and tangible rhythm of remembering Jesus, of tasting in the elements of bread and the cup that the Lord is good. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good as the Holy Spirit renews our spirits and shapes us more into the likeness of Jesus. Test one in, the pure, is in pursuit of integrity, where is my focus? Test two, David gives. Where are my feels? Now feels is just a stupid way to say feelings. But it's one syllable and starts with F and Makes sense. What do I love? And what do I hate? David uses love and hate language in this psalm. Look at verse 4. David says, I don't consort, meaning I don't keep company with liars and hypocrites. Verse 5, and I hate the assembly of evildoers. And in contrast to the things David says he hates, look at verse 8. David says, I love the habitation of your house. Essentially saying, I love being in the presence of God. It's a theme we're going to see in the next number of Psalms, is this uh, language about being in the presence of God. Maybe keep your ears out for that in the coming weeks. That one's for free. As humans, we cannot help but be led by what we love. We can't help it. We are hardwired to be led and pulled on by what we love. Love. So think about it for a second. What are some of the things that you love? If you love baseball, and like me, you happen to grow up loving the Minnesota Twins, you will live in a perpetual state of skepticism, especially when it comes to pitching, right? How can you hit sick home runs in a game and still lose, right? Pit- pitching. Can I get an amen, right? 
Right? If you love Bison Athletics, you will wear a lot of green and gold. And you just come to expect and assume five, six, dozen more national championships until the Big Ten finally gets it in their heads to ask us to grace, grace them with our presence. Like, when are they going to ask? Because it's about dang time, right? I'm just saying if you love Bison Athletics. If you love family time, you will structure your schedule around meal times and, and weekends together. You just will. If you love books and reading, you will sacrifice time with real people in order to get lost in worlds of imagination. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying just what do you love, right? And if you love God, as David is saying, you love the habitation of his house, the dwelling place of God, his presence, his temple, being with him, being near him, being about the things that he's about. If you love him, then you will grow to look more like him, is essentially what David is saying. That's the things you love. What about the things that you hate? Hot weather, cold weather, other certain green and gold sports teams who shall not be named, or more seriously, or more seriously. That was a freebie for Mitch. When we see wickedness or evil in the world, our hearts just sink, right? We hate it. We hate it. So the question is, how do we know what to love or what to hate, for that matter? How do we, one, assess what's going on there in our hearts, and how do we know what to love or hate? I've said it before. I'll say it again. Our current culture fully endorses the doctrine of sola feels. And it's part joke, part dead serious. Whatever you feel, that is absolute. That's tenant of the doctrine of solo feels. Facts, logic, reason, nuance, all subject to and subservient to feels. Further, our current modern Western culture and philosophy of life tells us that if we want to be truly happy and truly confident in life, then we need to run hard after whatever our hearts tell us. Follow your heart. And the idea that our loves are hardwired into us without change, therefore, we just need to pursue those things. But Psalm 26 pushes on that. Psalm 26 actually gives an indication that we can and maybe should aim our loves in a particular direction. Look at what David says. He, he is moving away from, and what he says he hates. He says he hates falsehood, hypocrisy, and wickedness. What are the opposites, if you will, to falsehood, hypocrisy, and wickedness? Truth, honesty, and holiness. These are opposites of falsehood, hypocrisy, and wickedness. And I don't think David is concerned here with God looking down on him and telling him, hey, you're hanging out with the wrong kind of people, David. I don't think that's what David's concern is here. David is concerned about his own heart. He's, he's concerned. He knows that it is more than possible for his own heart to be drawn away from God. And toward wickedness. 
If he had these lyrics at the time, I don't think David would have a problem singing the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Right? I think that's David's concern here. Remember, David never claims sinless perfection. He knows. He knows he's a sinner. And so David is actually redirecting his desires toward those things that are true, towards those things that are honest and humble, the things that reflect God's character, things that are holy. So we apply the test. Where are my feels? Where are my affections? Do I love the things that God loves, mercy and justice and truth and holiness? Do I detest the things and hate the things that God hates? Wickedness, evil, self-righteousness, and sin. And then the question of trust comes in here. It's not enough to apply the test, but also to look at trust in God. What does it look like to trust God as it relates to our hearts? What does it look like to trust God as it relates to how we feel and what we love? What things in our lives actually keep us from fully loving the things that God loves? Or another question. What do I need to say no to so that I might cultivate a heart that loves God? How do I redirect my misaligned affections? Hebrews 12 helps us again. I said we'd come back. Here we are. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he says, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Every means every. Not some. We lay aside the shame and the guilt that comes from our accuser, Satan, as we stand in the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. So we lay aside that shame and guilt. We are no longer condemned because of Christ. Amen. And, and, We lay aside the shame and guilt that comes from Satan through others when we uphold the truth of God's word and the truth of God's character, even when and especially when it confronts and corrects the doctrine of sola feels. We don't need to be sheepish or shy, but we can stand with godly confidence on those things that are true. And we can do so without wavering and without shame because our hearts are aligned with God's heart, that we love what he loves, that we hate what he hates. And we can stand like David before the Lord with a clean conscience. That's one of the marks of integrity, a clean conscience before God and a humble confidence before others. Test one, in pursuit of integrity, where is my focus? Test two, where are my feels? Where is my heart? And the third and final test, where are my feet? Now, we don't use our actions, what we do, in order to earn our standing before God. Just want to be real clear on that. But we can look at our feet, our actions, to help us identify, are we moving forward or backwards, or are we just standing still and not moving at all? Look at verse 6. These are are verbs. There's action words here. By the way, verbs are action words. English lesson. David says, verse 6, I wash my hands, I go around your altar. Verse 7, I proclaim thanksgiving aloud, I tell all your wondrous deeds. Verse 12, I will bless the Lord. Essentially, stuff is happening. David's doing things. He's not standing still. He's moving. 
More specifically, he's worshiping. Verse 11, he says, I shall walk in my integrity. Notice the difference between David walking in integrity, verses 1 and 11, and how he describes wickedness. Sit and conspire. Gather in little clubs of evildoers in verses 4 and 5. There are those who sit and complain and gossip, who become so internally focused that nothing fruitful can come of it. And then there's David, who is just continuing to move forward. As an aside, I think there's a, there's a caution here against passivity due to fear. It's a caution against an undiscerning, excuse me, undiscerning acceptance of the philosophies and ideas of the world, and rather than a humble critique according to God's word and God's character. David ties his trust in God to real, tangible action. I trust in the Lord, therefore I worship. Therefore I proclaim. Therefore, I tell. Therefore, I bless the Lord. So the movement of our feet, both practical and spiritual, is an indicator of the status of our personal spiritual integrity. It's putting our faith into action. Now let me say this again so we're very clear. We're not saved by our works, but we who are saved are called and equipped to work. John Calvin, in a response to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, their Council of Trent, he wrote this, which is, we've heard the first part before, but I'm going to read the whole quote. He says this, It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. He continues, Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet the sun is not alone because it is, excuse me, constantly conjoined with light. Meaning, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, we are saved by faith and not by works, right? For by grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing, so that no one may boast. And so when we start talking about works, about action, about effort, people start to get uncomfortable. I mean, we're gospel people after all, right? We're grace people, right? And you've heard me quote this Dallas Willard quote before, that grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we just read it, right? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Where are your feet? Now, I celebrate, and we will champion that we are not a people driven by rules and man-made requirements, full stop. And because we are instead a people marked by, saved by, and are being renewed by God's grace through the Holy Spirit, we are also called to run by that same grace and by that same Spirit. Again, our passage from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run. We still get to run. 
Now, as a baseball coach, I coached 13U baseball this year, which is interesting. The bases are about 20 feet further than they were last year. The pitcher's mound's about 10 feet further. And the kids are just, well, half of them are really big, and the other half are not quite big yet. And I'm constantly reminding the boys on the team to be moving their feet, whether they're in the batter's box or they're in the field. If they're sitting flat-footed back on their heels and someone hits a line drive at them, it's over. It is past them or something. If they're in the batter's box and they're leaning back and just waiting for the ball to get close to the plate before they even think about swinging, strike. Like every time. So that's a a, a relationship to our spiritual lives a little bit. Are we moving? Are we ready? Are we flat-footed? Are we standing still? See, I want to be ready in my life. I want to be ready to engage with someone who's in need of real help. Wherever God has me in a given day, I want to be agile. I want to be ready with real gospel hope. I want to look more like Jesus in that situation. And because we already have the righteousness of Jesus, capital R, that we are justified by faith, we don't have to get hung up on how we perform and how well we're running. We step forward by faith, trusting that as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, that it is God who is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So question, where are you stuck? Where are you paralyzed? Where are you flat-footed and not moving? Where does your trust in God need to move your feet? What conversation, maybe even today, do you need to initiate? What need is God calling you to step in and fill? What is God calling you to do even today as a simple act of obedience that moves you from stuck to stepping? Integrity as a follower of Jesus means letting Jesus' love for you and your love for him move you forward to action. Where is my focus? Where are my feelings? Where are my feet? And what does it look like to trust God and let our trust in him shape our focus, direct our focus, shape our loves, and move us to action? Pastor Devin said it last week from Psalm 25, so good I read it like six times, We have an unshakable, unbreakable, unchangeable hope in the character of God. Betsy had to send me a picture because the only picture I had of Devin was a bitmoji that I didn't think would be good. (laughs) Listen to it. He said this last week, and you should go back and listen to it again. The whole sermon's good, by the way, but you should go back and listen to it again. We have an unshakable, unbreakable, unchangeable hope in the character of God. Psalm 25 is all about trusting in the character of God, who he is. So David's confidence in Psalm 26 makes a whole lot more sense in light of what we just read in Psalm 25. So in order to walk in confidence and in integrity with a clean conscience before God and before others, dare I say, it requires us to be anchored to the unshakable truth about who God is and who we now are in Jesus. This is the contrast we need to consider. Is our trust truly in the Lord or is it in something else? These tests of integrity, they're not actual tests. It's not a quiz. But the things we looked at are are a compass that we can use, a filter we can use to, to... assess and then reorient our eyes and our hearts and our feet 
our feet toward deeper trust in the Lord. See, I think there's a lot of false and faulty confidence in the world and people around us. A lot of misplaced confidence and pride in destructive things that have no foundation in truth or reality. So how can we as followers of Jesus live lives with a humble and godly confidence? It doesn't come by pursuing confidence in and of itself. But we grow in godly confidence as we pursue integrity and we trust in God's grace to us. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that we are on our own, undeserving. And yet in Christ, we can come boldly before your throne, confident that we're not condemned. So Father, for any of us in the room who would claim Christ, would you renew in us the joy of your saving power? That it would kill both our hopeless doubts and our pride. Father, for anyone here who's continuing to lean into and trust in themselves, Father, I pray you break that hold on our hearts. that we might truly walk in honesty and integrity before you. We thank you that in Christ Jesus, you not only wash us clean, but you declare us clean. And as we come to the communion table, would you renew our hearts? Wash us again with the grace that's found in Christ Jesus. that we might be confident before you, not arrogant, but confident before you as you've wrapped us up. Thank you that you make your people holy. Encourage our hearts as we come to the table now. In Jesus' name, amen.